we're going to look at uh, at five mega themes of the book of Romans. This is our last flyby. This is our last flyover of the book of Romans before we dive in uh, to uh, chapter uh, 9. And the more as I prepare to study chapter 9, the more I'm thinking we need to do about uh, half a dozen more flyovers just to get these things. So this is your last opportunity to really understand before we get into some really difficult uh, passages to understand and difficult for us as human beings to accept about the nature and purposes of God. This is our last time to kind of get that big picture so that we stay balanced as we go through uh, Romans chapter 9. But last week we talked about what's the big idea of the book of Romans. And as I went through that, I thought, you know, I really want to give you guys a map. Because if, if you can, I don't know, at least I am, I'm, I'm, I'm very linear, I'm very uh, logical in my thinking, but I'm also very uh, uh, visual. And if you can just see the breadth and the scope of Paul's purpose in writing this book, that, that he has such a vision for the world, the known world at that time, the, the Roman Empire. And I hope that you can see that. We said, what's the big idea of the book of Romans? What's the one thing that the whole thing is about? We said that Paul was writing a logical explanation and a practical exhortation for at least five basic purposes. And I have them there on your map. The first was this. First of all, he's writing from where? From Corinth. So there he is. In, in, in the, and by the way, I guess last week I had my east and west all mixed up and nobody waved their hand and said, you're all mixed up. Please do that if I'm getting mixed up. And I was like, now how did that happen? Because I know better. Well, I looked at this diagram that I had drawn um, that, uh, and I had written it backwards on the diagram. So that just guaranteed that the rest of the, the thing. So anyway, he's over here in the east. Did you hear me? East. He's on the east and he's trying to get to the west. So what's his purpose? Prepare to further establish the gospel in Rome. So he's writing from Corinth and he wants to prepare to further establish the gospel in Rome. But before he does that, he's going to go all the way farther east to Jerusalem. And so he asked the Roman, mainly Gentile Christians, to pray for the Gentile offering from all the Gentile churches there in Asia Minor, there in the east. He's going to present it to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Now, you've got to understand a little bit about what's really going on there. He is doing something that is it's like a prophetic picture of what's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. In the millennial kingdom, King Jesus is going to rule on this planet and he's going to rule from Jerusalem. And the prophets predicted in the Old Testament that the Gentile nations are going to bring the riches in to his kingdom. And so what Paul is saying is, look, we're doing we're preparing kingdom subjects right now. And so right now, what we need to be doing as Gentile believers, we ought to, since the Jewish believers are in need, we ought to bring our riches from the Gentile churches into Jerusalem. And we should be brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter whether we're Jew or Gentile. So he says, hey, you guys in Rome, I know you didn't give to this thing, but I want you to be a part of it. I want you to get in on it because this is what God's purpose is. He's drawing a people out, Jew and Gentile, making them one in Christ. So Romans is a missionary prayer letter. Pray for me. 
that this will be. And in praying with me, you're a part of it. We're, listen, if you'll pray for the Ivies this week, then you become a part of what they're doing, even though you physically are not there. Second, third reason is not only do I want you to pray for me as a missionary, I want you to partner with me in bringing the gospel to the unreached in Spain. So preparing them in Rome, praying for the believers, Jewish believers in Jerusalem, and now I want you to partner with me. And you can see on the map, Rome's right there in the middle. Rome is there in the, in the west, and he's saying, I want you to go and take the, help me take the gospel to the farthest reaches. And so where you see purpose number three in your map, that's Spain, Hispania, that's Spain. And he's looking, look, I want to go as far as I can. In fact, off the map to the north, to the northwest, is England, Britannia, the farthest outreaches of the empire. Some church historians think Paul even made it all the way up to Britannia, to England. Now, whether Paul did or not, we know missionaries did because that's the farthest that the church even reached all the way up there. That's just amazing. So he's saying, look, I want you to be a part of partnering with me. That means more than prayer. That means financial help, relational help, emotional help, spiritual help. Why are these young men and women coming in October? They're looking for partners they're looking for prayer support. And that's why we need to be here. Even if we don't take them all on, and, and we may not be able to take them all on, that depends a lot on how we give and our continuing giving, which, by the way, our giving is great to missions. I think we're ahead of where we, uh, where we need to be. We're ahead of that. Note to self, that doesn't mean stop giving. That means keep giving. God is preparing because he knows these six individuals are coming. The six couples are coming. But what they're looking for is they're looking for support. So even if we don't take them on by us being here to encourage them and to say, it's amazing how God is sending you out, not to Spain, but to Pakistan, to Mongolia, to uh, Netherlands, to even secularize Boston, to the Philippines. It's amazing. We want to partner with you. We want to partner. We want to encourage you. Yeah, to do that, what are they going there to do? Purpose number four is right there. Proclaim the gospel that leads to an obedient faith among all peoples. Now, when you look at that map, that all peoples takes on real meaning. Look at that map. I mean, that's the known world. And this one individual, the Apostle Paul, though he didn't do it by himself, he's making a global impact. And he's like, get on board. This is great. And listen, when he says this is great, it's not like it's all fun and games. You know, sometimes we glorify missionaries thinking, wow, that's the life. They get all the attention and everything. Yeah, this guy's been beaten three times with rods. He's been stoned and left for dead. He doesn't know it. He's going to get to Rome, but he's going to get to Rome through a shipwreck that he almost loses his life and uh, gets bitten by a poisonous snake. It's just, listen... He's into it, and he's into it completely. But how does all this happen? What is the purpose of missions? What is the purpose of Romans? It's to proclaim that gospel. 
Why are there Jewish believers? Because the gospel was proclaimed. Why are there Gentile believers? Because the gospel was proclaimed. How are those people going to get saved in Spain? Because the gospel is proclaimed. How are those people in Pakistan going to get saved? Because the gospel is proclaimed. How are they going to get saved in Mongolia? Because the gospel is going to get proclaimed. How are they going to get saved here in Kansas City? Because the gospel is proclaimed. Because you and I are going to share it and we're going to live it. And so that's the fourth purpose. But he had a fifth purpose, we said, and it was to promote unity between Jew and Gentile in the church, to spread God's glory and God's gospel among God's people. So now, here's the thing. We said they're divided. How are you going to unite them? There's only one way to unite God's people. You preach the gospel. The gospel. So, as we go into Romans 9 in the weeks to come, and it's going to stir up objections, it's going to stir up accusations, it's going to stir up questions, and you might get very emotional and tense about Remember, Remember, what's going to unite us is the gospel. It's going to be the gospel. And yet, we're going to see today that the gospel does divide. It's not all peace and harmony when you share the true gospel. It really reveals people's hearts. Okay, now, as you look at that map, let me say this, and then, I, then we'll move to our mega themes. As you look at that map, there's a lot of irony and a lot of interesting unity going on because he wants to promote unity for greater ministry. And let me just, let's stop and think about this a little bit. The one who is writing the book of Romans is what nationality? Say it out. He's Jewish. The one writing, Paul, who's writing, is what nationality? Jewish. And yet he's the apostle to who? Does that not seem weird? I mean, you got Peter, you got 12, you know, other Jewish apostles, and, 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 and Peter's the apostle to the Jews, and yet wouldn't you think a Gentile believer would have been a better apostle to the Gentiles? Well, yeah, that's how us humans think, but that's not how God thinks. So he takes the Pharisee of the Pharisees, the ultimate Jew, saves him and gives him a heart and a mission to the Gentiles. What's that do? Unite these two peoples. Now, he's writing as a Jew, the apostle to Rome, which is predominantly what? Gentile. Okay, now, what is he asking you to do? This Jewish apostle to the Gentiles is eager to minister to a predominantly Gentile church. So he's a Jew, and he says, I want to minister to Gentiles. Yet, purpose number two, this Jewish apostle to the Gentiles is carrying a financial offering from Gentiles to what nationality? To Jews. So he's taking money. He, he, not taking money, that sounds bad. He's taking an offering from the Gentiles, and he's bringing it to Jews. Now he wants this Gentile church to pray about the needs of, of Jewish believers, Gentile, Jew, Gentile, Jew. Pretty soon you're like, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is, are we one in Christ? This Jewish apostle to the Gentile is requesting this predominantly Gentile church to partner with him in getting the gospel to Gentiles in Spain. And he's reminding this Gentile church in Rome that the Jewish rejection of Christ has led to their salvation. And one day the Jewish nation will be saved and bring in even greater blessings for Jew and Gentile. So Paul's writing this book 
to these believers from these different backgrounds in order to unite them in one purpose. We've got to get the gospel to all peoples. You say, what do I care about Pakistan? What do I care about Arabs? What do I care about people who are plotting to terrorize and destroy my country? Well, that's the problem. We got to get beyond my country and we got to look at them as people who need the gospel just like we needed it. You see, me and my lostness, anybody could have looked at me and my lostness and says, why care about him? Why share Christ with him? Why have a burden for him? And when you look at yourself, any one of us, that's the same thing someone could have said. But someone looked beyond you, your personality, your differences, your uniqueness, the things that irritate you about them, the things that drive them nuts. They look beyond all that to share the gospel with you. And that's what we should be doing. So what's being said about the one thing the whole thing is about? It's there in the, under your map. Because God's gospel reveals that his righteousness is for all peoples by faith alone and Christ alone. Here's what we should be doing. We should partner together in spite of background, in spite of personality, in spite of preferences, in spite of likes and dislikes. We ought to partner together to do one thing, proclaim his gospel and do it verbally and do it indeed. Romans 1 through 11 is about the verbal proclamation. Romans 12 through 16 is living sacrifices in word and deed. It's about loving others. So word and deed. And who do we do it to? We do it to all peoples, not just the suburbanites, but the urbanites, not just in my neighborhood where people where I chose to live, but in all neighborhoods where all people are who need Christ. And why do I do it? Why do we do it? We do it for God's glory. We do it for their good. And ultimately, it comes back and it becomes our joy. Now, that's the purpose of the book. I want you to look at five mega themes. And these mega themes go throughout all of Romans, but they are especially what ties together Romans 9 through 11. And so as we go into Romans 9 through 11, I want you to do these, these five mega themes. Now, these aren't the only big themes in the book of Romans. But they're the five that I think we really need to keep in our minds and our hearts to understand Romans 9 through 11. And let's begin with mega theme number one. Here it is. Romans exalts the glory of God's majesty. Romans exalts the glory of God's majesty. Romans is basically a book about God. And uh, I learned something new these last few weeks that I didn't know about this book. Romans is basically a book about God. Do you know that God shows up more often in Romans than any New Testament book? Now, that's surprising to me. Because, I mean, you read the New Testament, and especially Paul, he can't go one verse without mentioning God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. But I'm saying God which in Greek is theos. What I'm saying is God in the sense of God, the Creator, God, the Father, mentioned more times than any... Now, listen, it's mentioned 153 times. 153 times. Now, let's give, give you some comparisons. That shows up, God shows up once in every 46 words. Every 47th word is God, theos, in this book. 
which, which is more than any other New Testament book except very short books like 1 Peter and 1 John. Let me give you a comparison. Romans is 16 chapters. Acts is 28, over uh, nearly twice as long. In Luke, in Acts, God shows up 116 times in 28 chapters. 153 in merely 16. Now, not only does God occur more in this book than any other New Testament book, it occurs more often in the book than any other theme in Romans. And I think I have this little chart there for you in your notes. This blew me away. That this book that's about the gospel and it's about God, he, God is mentioned 153 times. What's the most word that's most often mentioned next in that chart? The law, and it's only 72 times. So, I mean, less than half as much. And what's the next word mentioned? Christ. And this blows me away. Because the, God, the Bible and the gospel is Christ-centered. And yet this book mentions God twice as much as any other topic in this book. Now, when I say that, that doesn't mean that uh, Romans doesn't exalt Christ or the Holy Spirit. In fact, you could outline Romans 1 through 3 really focuses on God, and Romans uh, 4 through 5 really focuses on a lot on Christ, and Romans 6 through 8 really focuses on the Holy Spirit. So, there, there's the whole trinity in this, but the one who gets top billing in this book more than any other is God. Now, what's that mean? Simply this, that the mega theme in Romans is God in all of his sovereign majesty. This book exalts the glory of God's majesty like no other. As you read through this book, and many of you have read through the book in these last few weeks... It reveals the glory of God's love and God's wrath, God's righteousness and God's mercy, God's judgment and God's son, God's gospel and God's children, God's electing purposes and God's word. It's all about everything is referenced in this gospel towards one being, and it is God. So what's this mean? So what? What's that mean to me, Chris? Well, it means this. Romans is a God-centered book. Romans is a God-centered book that requires God-centered thinking and calls for God-centered living. You'll never understand this book, and you're not going to understand the weeks to come until you get God at the center of your thinking. In fact, several times in this book, Paul will address objections to what he's saying, and he'll say, now, here's what someone's going to say, and then he puts in parentheses, I'm talking humanly. I'm talking humanly. You know, what's he mean by that? Well, we're all humans. He's human. What's he mean by that? You know what he's saying? I'm talking about people who are thinking man-centered. When you're man-centered, you're going to say this, but God says this. All right? In fact, at one of the hardest points in Romans 9 that we're all going to struggle with, because believe me, we are going to struggle. He says, who are you, O oh man? What's he saying? You're looking at this 
from a man-centered way and you're judging what God is doing and saying he's wrong. And he says, listen, this is a God-centered book. It requires God-centered thinking and God-centered thinking results in God-centered living. In fact, that is, again, a a summary of Romans. Romans 1 through 11 is God-centered thinking. And when you get that down, then you're ready for Romans 12 through 16, and that's God-centered living. So that's how it works. The secret to understanding the mystery of this book and the great reminder to us is we should always strive to live our lives and view our circumstances from a God-centered perspective. Ain't saying it's easy. Just saying it needs to be done. Now, number the third point. Chapters 9 through 11? Well, they exalt God's majesty, His divine sovereignty, like no other part of the book. In fact, one way to summarize all of Romans chapter 9 is this. The majesty of divine sovereignty. That's Romans 9. And I don't care who the theologian is, who the Bible scholar student is, they all agree. Romans 9, the majesty of divine sovereignty. So we should not be surprised that we're going to be in over our heads in the weeks to come. You say, I don't want to be in over my head. Why do I want to come? Why? Because we live in a God-centered world. And we need God-centered thinking to have God-centered living. Now, let me just, let's just look at Romans 9 through 11. God is mentioned 26 times in Romans 9 through 11. Christ is only mentioned seven times, and the Spirit is mentioned only one time. God-centered book. It's all about God's majesty. Let's dive in a little bit. Turn to Romans 9, 14 through 18. Let's look at a little bit of the majesty of God's sovereignty. I figure if I keep exposing you to this, you'll, you'll, you'll begin to surrender to it, and we won't be so shocked in the weeks to come. So let's look at Romans 9, 14 through 18. Look a little bit at this God-centeredness. Look a little bit at the majesty of His sovereignty as He shows us mercy. Romans 9, 14 through 18. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will. That's sovereign will. God says it, it's going to happen. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Drop down to verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now, that's the one that's really hard. Verse 19. You will say to me then, well, if that's the way it is. See, now here's the man-centered thinking. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who resists his will? And that is the number one objection against God's sovereignty. Well, that's not fair. God's not just. How can he hold me responsible if he determines it all? No, you're not going to like the answer. On the contrary, who are you, O man? See, there it is. The man-centeredness. Who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? 
Or does the potter have the right over the, or does not the potter have right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that is, lost people? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, that is, saved people, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, I'm, I'm reading quite a few of people to help me on this. I'm writing a lot of woes and a lot of, like, woe, like, woe, that, like, like blows my mind in margins. I'm writing a lot of wows in margins because that's the majesty of God's divine sovereignty. Drop over to Romans 11. Romans eleven thirty three through 36, you say, wow, the glory. Romans exalts the glory of God's majesty. Look at how this whole thing's going to end. If you'll stick with us through this study and we make it to Romans 11, here's what we're going to say. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? I can't figure this out. And who became his counselor? I can't give him advice because I can't figure out what it is that he's doing. It's beyond me. It's above me. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? In other words, I didn't give any. God doesn't owe me anything. He doesn't owe me explanations. He doesn't owe me salvation. He doesn't owe me anything. Everything he gives to me is mercy, mercy, and mercy. Oh, the depths, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's the glory of the majesty of God. Is it any wonder that one Bible scholar has this to say? Romans may be truly described in a way that no other book can be as a book about God. It is perhaps this that gives us its importance and its appeal. And all I would say to you is it not only gives it its appeal, it also gives it its problems. It's because this is a book about God that we struggle with it. But I'm telling you, it's because it's a book about God that there's hope in it. There is hope in it. Because without Him, there is no hope in our lives. There is no hope. Wow, good stuff. All right, mega theme number two. Romans explains the good news of God's message. Another mega theme is not just this majesty of God, but this this majestic God, this sovereign God cares enough about sinners to give them the gospel. And so it explains the good news of God's message. Now, we've already covered much of this last week, so I only want to make uh, two points and then apply them to Romans 9 through 11. Point number one is this, and I think I've made this sufficiently in the previous weeks. The gospel message is everything to Paul. The gospel message is everything. It's his, listen, it's his message, but it's also everything about his ministry. It's everything about his mission, and it's his mandate from God. Listen, if you know the gospel, then you know Paul, because this is his purpose, his passion, and the power for everything he is. To know his gospel is to know him. I I love it. He goes from calling it God's gospel to calling it my gospel. And hopefully that's where we need to be. It's 
our gospel because it's our hope and God has given it to us to share with other people. Second point I want to make, and this is where Romans 9 through 11 comes in. The gospel message is what divides the saved from the lost. The gospel message is what divides the saved from the lost and what unites all true people of God together. So there's the beauty of the gospel. See, we focus on the gospel saving people and uniting people. And we have to understand that every time we share the gospel, it divides the saved from the lost. And I think if we really got honest, that's why we don't share the gospel more. Because we know the power it has to divide. And many of the people that we need to share it with, we work with, and we don't want separation from them. Many of the people we need to share it with are in our family, and we already got enough uh, difficulty relating to them. We don't want further division. Many of the people we need to share it with are lost friends. And we value that friendship, but we don't value it enough because if we did, we'd share the gospel and say, I'm willing to lose you as a friend, to gain you as a brother and sister for eternity. And if you don't share it, they don't get saved. That's just how it is. Uh, This week, we, we have people all the time coming in needing help. And because of your faithful giving... We have a benevolence fund, and we can help. And we help a lot of people in the zip codes around this church. We, and we have ways to, to you know, surf, uh, sift through that. And we're, we, I'm sure we've been taken many times, but that's just a part of it. It's done in the name of Jesus, okay? So this lady came in this week, and Kim's helping her out. And, and we, we've helped her in the past. She's, we've, we've, helped, we, we, we've given, we've given, we've given. Uh, her son was in our youth department. He's now in prison. She was just sharing her burden, sharing her story. And so uh, I took the opportunity to join in the conversation. And as we talked, we listened. And she needs Christ. She needs the gospel. We've given you money, but money isn't going to take care of what your need is. Here's your need. And as I began to share the gospel with her, before I did that, establish rapport. We've, you know, it, it was time. It's time to share. And so as I share... And this has happened several times because here's my determination. No one's going to get repeated money from this church without hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what we do, we do in the name of Jesus. But as soon as I got to the point that we're all sinners and none of us are good enough, Kim's right there, the wall comes down. The wall, I mean, just the hardness, the wall, and she immediately begins to get defensive about her goodness. And I said, said her name, I said, I know you're good. You're a good person. I'm a good person. The problem is both of us are not good enough for God. And she just, the, the division, you could, you could just feel the separation. And that's the reality of the gospel. It divides the saved from the lost, and the consequences. Let me just take you very quickly to Romans 9, verse 3. Romans 9, verse 3. We're going to get into this in two weeks. And here's what we're going to see. Notice what it says. Paul is talking about his Jewish brethren who have rejected Christ. And here's what he says. I have great sorrow and unceasing unceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed 
separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What's he saying there? Is that when you reject the gospel, you are forever separated from God for a Christless eternity. So in chapter 9, verse 3, well, let me, let me read the third point there in your notes. Romans 9 through 11 reveals how the Jews' rejection of the gospel message has led to the salvation of the Gentiles and how the reception of this message by the Gentiles does not mean God has rejected the nation of Israel completely or ultimately. That's Romans 9 through 11. It's all about rejection and acceptance of the gospel. Let me take you through that very quickly. Romans 9 and 3, we just saw, shows how rejection of the gospel leads to eternal separation, whether Jew, whether Gentile. Drop over to Romans 10, 8 through 13. Romans 10, 8 through 13 is all about the acceptance of the gospel message. Romans 8, uh, 10, 8 through 13 says the acceptance of the message is by faith alone in what Christ has already done and that this leads to salvation, whether Jew or Gentile. Notice what it says, 10, 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, the gospel. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. What's he saying there? He's saying, look, it's what I was trying to tell this lady. You're not good enough. But here's the good news. God has done it all, so all you have to do is receive it as a free gift. Quit trying to earn it. You can't receive it. It's by faith. Look at 10.15. Reminds us that the messenger who brings the good news has beautiful feet. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. You know why I keep sharing the gospel even though people reject it? It's because there will be a divine appointment at one point and someone will say, I need that. I needed to hear that. That's good news. You've got beautiful feet. Thank you for bringing that to me. Look down at 1017. 10.17 says a really bold statement. We're very familiar with this. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You realize what's saying there? It's saying that hearing the gospel is what actually gives us the faith to believe in it in the first place. Faith comes by hearing the gospel. And here's what we want to do. We want people to come to Christ without hearing the gospel. Somehow I just want you to accept him. I want to love you enough that you'll accept him. But I want to share the gospel because that might turn you off. But the fact is, if you don't share the gospel, they won't ever have the faith to believe. They won't have the faith to believe. It comes through the gospel. This is why Paul says the gospel is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first. 1128. Here's a powerful verse. 1128. From the standpoint of the gospel... They, that is the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. I want to look at the first part of that verse. Here's what he's saying. That those who reject the gospel are enemies of God and His saving purposes. But the good news of that is even when people reject, God uses their rejection to save others. 
we're going to learn about that. God uses the rejection of the gospel to save others. Well, I think you can see the importance of the message. Let's move on to Mega Theme 3. Mega Theme 3 is one that we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Romans expands the reach of God's mission. So, what, what, what are our themes? We got God's majesty, but we also have God's message, the gospel that is explained. And now we have God's mission that is to be spread and extended. The mega theme number three is Romans expands the reach. Now, again, we've covered much of this. I hope you're getting the idea. This is a missionary book. Let me just say two things. It's there in your notes. Chapters 9 through 11 shows us that a high view of God's majesty does not mean we should neglect sharing the gospel message or sending out missionaries. All right? So whatever happens in chapter 9, there's always come in chapter 10. But here's the thing. We don't pick and choose. You know, we're not going to have a vote in the weeks to come. How many like chapter 9? Raise your hand. How many prefer chapter 10? Raise your hand. No, here's the vote. How many surrendered to 9 and 10? And this is, this is what we do. All right? Because I'm telling you, people pick and choose. And that's why, that's one of the reasons, as foolish as I'm thinking now that it was, that we're going through 9 through 11. Because it's just too easy to skim over nine, jump to eight, or jump jump to ten, and talk about God's mission. So here's the thing. Chapter nine focuses on divine sovereignty and election, but chapter ten focuses on human responsibility of missions to the lost. And I've, I read it to you. Let's look at it one more time. Romans 10, 14, right there in the middle of the chapter, Romans 10, 14. How shall they call on him who they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him who they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher or a missionary? And how shall they preach unless they are what? Sent. 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 Now, you would swear this is the same guy that wrote chapter 9? Yes, it is. The guy that wrote chapter 9 that said God is sovereign in salvation is the guy who wants to go to Spain. He is the guy who is willing to be beaten near death to share the gospel. There is not a division between a high view of God's majesty and a sharing of this message and an involvement in missions. We shouldn't be afraid of it. It all goes together. Beyond us, but it does go together. Now, second point. Chapters 9 through 11 expands the reach of God's mission as much as chapters 15 and 16. 15 and 16 is all about his missionary plans. One way to summarize chapter 10 is this. Message, the message and mission of human responsibility. So you got the majesty of divine sovereignty, chapter 9. But then you have the message and the mission of human responsibility. All right. Mega theme number four. And you're probably going to be ready for this by now. Romans exults in the hope of God's mercy. Romans exults in the hope of God's mercy. I didn't say exalt. What does exalt mean? It's a biblical word. It's in Romans. It means to glory in it. It means to rejoice in it. We exult in the hope 
of a chief's win. And when they win, what will we do? We will exalt in it. That was amazing. Only God could have done that. It surely isn't earned or deserved. They will never win apart from God's mercy. Woo! Did you see that? That's exalting. Well, here's the point. Apart from God's majesty, His sovereignty, and the message and the mission to reach people, if it wasn't for His mercy, no one would be saved. I rejoice in that. I exult in that. And here's the thing. To the degree that we exult in the mercy of God is the degree that we recognize it's due to the majesty of God. Because if I... If I did it, then I exult in who? Me. And what do I say to God? You're lucky I'm on your team. You know, I, I know you offered the salvation to me, but in my own good time, I chose it. And now you're lucky to have me, and I at least gave you myself to save me. I'll decide whether I want to serve you. I'll decide how, I'll decide how dedicated I'm going to be, because this is really about me taking you up on something that I chose. But you see, when we understand that if it wasn't for His sovereign mercy, I would have stayed in my sin, justifying it, wallowing in it, in bondage to it, but for the grace of God, I am saved. And therefore, me personally, I need to do a better job of exalting in the mercy of God. Because I find the longer I'm saved, see, the more I can lay back, the more I can say, been there, done all that, let others do it. Well, this isn't about others. This is about my sovereign God. Heavy stuff. Let me say this very quickly. How could this book be any other than an exaltation in the mercy of God when the first three chapters declares everybody on this planet is a sinner without any hope of salvation? I mean, you know, what an uplifting book, Mark, okay? You know, let's read Romans for a little excitement. You know, I'm discouraged. Let's get uplifted. Let's read Romans 1 through 3. And you get to the end of three, and what does he say? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None is righteous. None seeks after God. All are condemned, and God is holy and just. Whoa, what an uplifter. Hey, listen, if you can read Romans 1 through 3 and not get that we need God's mercy, then you need to read Romans 1 through 3 again. Now, just to show you that I'm not making this up, turn to Romans 12, verse 1. Romans 12, verse 1. This book is so filled with the mercy of God that Paul summarizes the first 11 chapters as the mercies of God. He said, you say, Paul, man, Romans 1 through 11, that is some deep stuff. Could you help me and just kind of give me a one-word explanation of all that you were saying? And you know what he say? mercies. Look at what he says, Romans 12. 
He says, I urge you, therefore, therefore what? Therefore, in light of all I've written in Romans 1 through 11, by the mercies of God. So don't get lost. So, you know, understand that God, you, God's character is such that he uses his majesty to show mercy to sinners so that they can be saved. And let me just give you a little more since we're looking at, at, at stats a little bit. Um, in Romans uh, chapters 9 through 11, you could summarize chapter 11. We've now moved to chapter 11 as the mystery of God's mercy. It's the mystery of God's mercy. So you've got divine sovereignty. Wow. The glory of his majesty. Then you've got human responsibility. Wow. We need the message. We need missions. How do you put those two together? You don't. It's the mercy of his majesty. So I've taken you through the three chapters. Just understand this, that the noun mercy and the verb to have mercy occurs nine times in these three chapters, only two times in the rest of the book. To have mercy occurs seven times in these three chapters and only five times in the rest of all of Paul's letters. All I'm saying is, is that in the midst of God's majesty, it's saturated with God's mercy. Notice what one commentator says in your notes. We shall misunderstand these chapters if we fail to recognize that their key word is mercy. Now, how can we put... Let, let, let me put this all together for you. Point number three. We've seen four themes so far. Let me put them together for you. In His sovereign majesty, God chooses to establish a mission of mercy to save all peoples. That's the mega themes. But how does he do it? Now write this down. I have no clue. Okay, write that down. How does he do that? How does that work? Write it down. I have no clue. First write down, Chris has no clue. And then write down, I will have no clue. Once Chris is done. We have no clue. You know why? Because of the fifth mega theme. And you know what the fifth mega theme is? Mystery. The whole thing is all a part of God's mystery. Okay, let me give you this. The mega theme, number five, is Romans explores the wonders of God's mystery. What's, what does a mystery not mean? It doesn't mean this. It's not a puzzle that we have to solve on our own. You know, God's not saying, I've got a secret and I'm not telling you. A mystery in the Bible is something that he reveals to us. So it's not a secret that we have to like, you know, it's not a who done. What's that book? Clue? You know, this isn't the game Clue, okay, where you got to figure out who killed the, the body in the, uh, in the uh, what? The library. In the where? Conservatory. The conservatory. Uh, my house isn't big enough. I don't have a conservatory. <laughs> we conserve a lot in our house, but it's not a conservatory. Okay, number two, the second aspect, what it does not mean, it's not a secret that God just tells certain spiritual people. This mystery is revealed to all his people, and he wants us to preach the mystery to all lost people. So this is when we talk about a mystery in Romans, it's not a puzzle, it's not a secret. Number two, and by the way, the problem with this mystery is not that we don't get it, it's that we don't like it. 
Okay, that's what we're going to learn. It's not that God hasn't shown it to us. It's just that what He shows is not particularly to our human liking. So what, so what does mystery mean? It's something that God has kept hidden in the past. He didn't reveal it fully in the Old Testament. It only came out once Christ came. And it only came out in the New Testament. And that's why the Jews had a hard time because they're like, man, I didn't see this coming. And a lot of it's in the Old Testament. And, and, and Paul's going to use Old Testament to prove what he's saying. But it was hidden. It wasn't revealed before in the Old Testament. It's something that God has now revealed through his apostles. It's now revealed through his apostles. And it's something that God wants to be made known to all people through the preaching of the gospel. So it was hidden, it's now revealed, and it's to be made known to all people. Third point under this is what is the mystery that God has now made known? I gave you the simple answer first. Here's the simple answer, and you've got to go to Colossians, you've got to go to Ephesians to understand, that, to read about it. It's revealed there. Here it is. The mystery is revealed as Christ in us, Christ in us, Jew and Gentile, the hope of glory, and us... Jew and Gentile, in Christ as one body, the church, by the indwelling spirit. Here's the mystery. They thought everybody was going to get saved. When Messiah came, when Christ came, the Jews would be saved and Gentiles would be saved. Yeah, they'd get in on it too, but they'd have to become what? Jewish. And it was all going to be about the Jews and, and they would become a part of Israel. The mystery was, yeah, Gentiles are going to get saved. And Jews will eventually get saved, but here's how it's going to happen. The Jews are going to reject their Messiah, and the Gentiles are going to run to him. And what's going to happen is they don't have to become Jews anymore. They just become one, and there's going to be this new created thing called the church. And the Jews are like saying, you just blew my mind. And the Gentiles are saying, hey, we're pretty special. And God's saying, and, and Paul and God is saying to them, hey... This is all due to His majesty and His mercy and His mystery. You Jews, you're getting humbled, but it's so that you'll eventually get saved. And hey, you Gentiles are saved, but it had nothing to do with you, so stay humble. Some of you are shaking your head, so I, 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 think, I, I don't think I'm going to be alone in the weeks to come, so that's encouraging to me. Now, here's the big answer. The mystery is this. That's a mouthful, but I'm summarizing all of Paul's theology. Here it is. God, the Father's sovereign eternal choice to redeem many out of all peoples by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that's now being made known to the entire universe, seen and unseen. See, this is being revealed to the angels and to the demons for them to marvel at. How? Through the preaching of the gospel to all peoples. Why? For the uniting of Jew and Gentile into one body. Oh, you mean the nation of Israel? No, the church, universal and local. How? By the indwelling of God the Spirit under the universal lordship of God the Son. Now, if you fully understand that, you get a you know, prize today. Because why? It is a mystery. Now... Having said that, chapter 9 through 11 explores the wonder of God's mystery in saving all peoples. And here's one way to summarize it. And this is what we're about to start studying. The mystery of God's majestic mission of mercy. That is the best I can do for Romans 9 through 11. It, we're going we're gonna to be looking at the mystery 
of God's sovereign, majestic mission of mercy to save many out of all peoples in Christ through the gospel. Now, as you look at that chart, the topics there show you. Here's what you always want to do. You want to take chapter 9, whatever it says there, add chapter 10, and it results in chapter 11. Are you with me? He's building a logical thing. So, you first get His merciful majesty. Wow, it's all God. That's blowing my mind. Okay, but it's also a missionary message. Oh, okay. But how do those fit together? Oh, it's a merciful mystery. See how I'm doing it? Focus, chapter 9, divine sovereignty. I don't think I like that. Okay, chapter 10, human responsibility. Yeah, but how do they go together? Oh, that's okay. Chapter 11, it's a glorious mystery. Israel is a part of this. In chapter 9, Israel was elected by God to be His chosen people, and yet they're denying the very Messiah that they were supposed to be waiting for. I don't get that. Well, chapter 10, they rejected Him. That's why they're not saved. They rejected Him. Yeah, but they're elect. That's all right. Chapter 11, Israel's future salvation. Now, look at the questions. You're going to relate to those questions. Because I'm relating to them. We're going to relate to them. Here's the question. If God's sovereign, then has His promises failed? Because, hey, if He elected Israel, why are they rejecting Christ? Is God unjust in electing people? Why does He choose some over others? I don't like that. I don't, I, that's not the kind of God I signed up for. Why does God still find fault? I mean, if He's that sovereign, then why does He still hold me responsible for my own choices. Well, chapter 10 has its own questions. Look at chapter 10. How did pagan Gentiles receive what was promised to chosen Israel? How'd those pagans get in on this? That's not, you know, the Jew is saying, that's not fair. I don't get it. I'm on the outside. They're on the inside. This isn't the way it was supposed to be. But notice this. How did those zealous Israelites miss out? How did zealous Israel... I mean, Israel... I mean, probably, nobody's more passionate for the one true God than that nation. How'd they miss it? And then look at chapter 11. Is God's rejection of Israel total and final? And here's a good one if you're witnessing to someone with a hard heart. Is there no hope for Israel's hard heart? And then I like the last question. It's not really a question that's raised. Paul just assumes it. Who can figure all this out? And he's going to answer that question for us. One last thing, and I've got to let you go. Look at Paul. This is a very personal... Uh, do you feel like we have scraped the Milky Way tonight, to this morning? Sure. But this is personal. Chapter 10, chapter 9 begins with Paul's pain over Israel's lostness. Chapter 10 begins with a passionate prayer for Israel's salvation. And chapter 11 begins with Paul presenting himself that there's hope for Israel yet because I'm a Jew and I'm saved. So any of this thinking that if you have a high view of God, you don't pray for people to get saved, Paul contradicts that here. Anybody that say that, that if you have a high view of God, you shouldn't be sharing the gospel has to deal with the apostle Paul. I'm telling you what, I've got a lot to learn. And we're going to learn it together. Amen? Exult in God's mercy this week. Because we have a sovereign God who has chosen you in Christ to be saved and to be a vessel that, of honor that shares the gospel with others. Let's pray.
Father, I'm way in over my head. But that's the way life is. In sin, I was over my head and I couldn't get myself out. And when you had the gospel brought to me, I accepted it and I got even more over my head because I can't begin to understand and comprehend why you would save me. And yet, Lord, I want to bring that message to as many people, and I pray for this lady that came this week, whose heart is hard, whose eyes are blind, and whose ears are deaf, and yet she so desperately needs the hope of the gospel that this church offers. And so I pray for her, and I pray for those that we work with, that we live by, and that are even here today that need you. And I pray that we will be as brokenhearted as Paul. We will be as passionate as Paul. And we will be as surrendered to your majesty as Paul. For ultimately, Lord, it's your majestic mission of mercy that saves any of us. And it's to you and to your son, Jesus Christ, that we give thanks and glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.